Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. This is a More Than Just Podcast production. Logan's Podcast, Season 6, Episode 2. My name is Tim Mitchell. I'm in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined once again by Jonathan Kulan in Mississauga, Ontario. Hello there, kids. I'm also joined by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? I guess we could dive into the show here. I, wait, you know, wait, wait, wait. I have see. a question. Jaime, why don't you have a Texas accent? Not from that part of Texas. It's uh, probably stops around the, the panhandle if you're going from east to west. It doesn't really doesn't really uh, cross over into the western part of Texas. Wait, wh- I got to look at a map now. I have no idea what the panhandle is. <laughs> well, Where's if you imagine that, that you had a cast iron pan in the shape of Texas, just think about where you would you would grab that, and that's the panhandle. Really? Oh, hang on. It's been so long since I looked at the shape of Texas. So people in that people in the region you're from don't have a discernible Texan accent. They don't have that kind of accent. No, so it ends up being a whole lot more uh, Hispanic, I don't know, starting where, uh, let me look at the map, probably around the, probably around the Pecos River, uh, it starts becoming more like New Mexico in, in that style. So the so El Paso is at the tip of the panhandle or not? No, no, it's the, the tip of the western point. That's El Paso, right? Where's the bottom of the, isn't that, that river that runs down there, is that the border? It's like a river? The Rio Grande down? River, which feeds from the Colorado. Yeah. So if you're thinking about like the Lyndon B. Johnsons or any of the the Bushes, um, they sound like coming from the eastern parts of Texas. You're thinking Dallas, you're thinking Houston, you're thinking maybe San Antonio or Austin. And it kind of still sounds like that, maybe a little bit of variation as you keep heading west. You hit the panhandle of like uh, Lubbock, Texas, for example, uh, Odessa or Midland. But once you cross the panhandle, you know, East going west, uh, you start getting into more of a Hispanic I'm territory. I'm not following. I'm not. So are you saying like the little squared off part at the top? That's the panhandle, like Amarillo, Lubbock. Mm-hmm. Oh, so the top, the top part, the northern part of of Texas is that panhandle, like up on the Rockies and stuff. Y- right. 
Yes. I, I, it's really hard to see the shape of Texas on this stupid Apple Maps app. It's like the lines are so vague. <laughs> yeah. Probably because it's in dark mode. Yeah, it's funny. I never really <clears throat> had a concept of where... I knew El Paso was like not anywhere near Houston or San Antonio or Dallas, but I didn't realize how far... Like, it's it's basically New Mexico, right? Yeah, yeah. So the my school's natural rival, so my school's University of Texas at El Paso, our natural rival is the folks in Las Cruces, New Mexico, the uh, New Mexico State University Aggies. Because if you look at a map, you'll say, oh, yeah, it's right there. the first major yeah. city going east to west that you would hit is not our state capital of Austin. You would hit Phoenix, and you would, I think, no, you'll definitely hit Phoenix first. Um, and you can hit Los Angeles, I think, before you hit Houston, if you're going, you know, just kind of due east and west. Like, it, is a, it is a massive state. South border of, of, of Texas is Mexico, right? Correct. So, like the other side of the Rio Grande, yeah. So the the twin cities kind of thing that uh, happens in that region is El Paso and Juarez in Mexico. So the the whole region together is like two million people, but El Paso itself is around seven hundred thousand. So there's a big chunk of folks just in the other side in the border, but it's kind of like. Uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul, or, you know, Pickham kind of regions that have a, a dual city relationship. Just this one has an international border between it. Hmm. I feel like I've learned something. This is great. <laughs> now like, I know. That's why people come to podcasts. <laughs> that's right. It's our uh, fun right. with maps section, right? Like fun with flags kind of thing. This is uh, maps. Yeah, well, we get into fun with flags some, on another episode, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, Alrighty, so we have we have a bunch of fat check because you know I paid attention this time when I was editing. In fact, this one this one comes from fan of the show Indy, my sister, uh, who pointed out that Asimov uh, did not the uh, novelization of by Asimov was done after the movie came out. The movie came first, and then Asimov came. Asimov did the novelization, and as it was, and now that she as soon as she mentioned that, I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah, I remember you know seeing that on the cover of the book because I do have the book and uh, paperback anyway. And it was, I think it was pretty common back then because uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, was actually written by screenplay by Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick uh, before the book was actually written for the, based on the movie. And But although the idea for 2001 was based on Arthur C. Clarke's short story, The Sentinel. And on the Annie Wershing fact check, uh, I'd forgotten. So I, I, as you know, I watched The Rookie, Nathan Fillion's latest show where he plays John Nolan. Rosalind Dyer is his nemesis. She's a prisoner that he put away and she's always trying to like, you know, she's like a typical nemesis. She's like, she's, you know, trying to work from her cell and have people kidnapped and put in barrels and stuff like that. And, and she's like a real, she's like a real, well, she was a real challenge to John Nolan and, and the people from the LA precinct that he works in. Um, but yeah, played by Annie Warshling. So I guess that, that character is also going to have to, you know, pass on. Right. So, and then on the Star Trek captain thing, we were talking about James B. Sicking, uh, which is the captain styles from Star Trek, the search for Spock. He was the Excelsior's captain, the smug guy. Hmm. Um, and that's the guy we couldn't remember the name of. He's, he also played the, you know, the sort of the, the, a proper and polished uh, cop lieutenant on um, on uh, Hill Street Blues played Howard Hunter, and, and he also, by the way, I didn't know I didn't know this, and I'm totally gapped on the whole show because I haven't watched it in a thousand years. But he played Doctor David Hauser, who is famously wait for it Doogie Hauser's dad. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I don't. I remember the show, but I don't remember him at all. Yeah, and um, just on the follow-up, Jonathan mentioned we were talking about Rick and his appearance on the season one or season three premiere of Star Trek Picard. Uh, Rick Sarabia, I pronounced his name incorrectly last week. Rick Sarabia was raised in Ottawa, and I knew him from my studies at York University, but he's actually born in the United States of America. So he's actually American, not Canadian. We have to give, we have to give that one back, John. Sorry. I feel betrayed. Um, there you go. All right. Yeah. See, we, we have too many of these uh, secret <laughs> Canadians, and it's nice to see that we sneak some of our own in there every once in a while, just to keep it fair. <laughs> Yeah, infiltrating Canada, in fact, like as, as a sort of like double agent kind of thing, right? Um, but the captain I was talking about on the show was played by Alan Ruck, John, Captain John Harriman, and he was the captain of, um, not the Els- Excelsior class, but he was he was from Generation. He's the doofus that, that uh, lets, yeah. I think, lets Kirk take over the ship or lets... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Enterprise yeah, it C at the beginning of Generations, right? Oh, see. Okay. Oh, there's so much instant fact check. So the USS Enterprise B is, in fact, Excelsior class, named after the USS Excelsior. That was the 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 prototype for the class, I believe. Um, but the B it, was the one from uh, yesterday's Enterprise. C is the, the one from Generations. No, C was the one from yesterday's Enterprise. It's the Ambassador class. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh right, I'm thinking time. I'm thinking backwards in time. You're right, absolutely right. Yep. yep yeah, yep, 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 yep. yeah. It gets real, real weird. But if you don't think of release dates and you think of it of just designation, yeah. so ignoring that's, the constitution. Yeah, that's exactly what I was original doing. Original and the A, the B is Excelsior class. The C is Ambassador yep. class, and then the D is uh, Galaxy class. That catches you up to yeah. You know where the start of the ding ding is. ding. Okay, guys, to your neutral corners, please. The round is over. <laughs> what was what was the E? What did what did they eventually? Um, what, what kind sovereign of class, class was the e? I believe is sovereign. Sovereign. That's right. That's right. Good stuff. Okay, there you go, folks. If you in case you've ever wondered what it looks like when two Star Trek nerds go at it, that that was it right there. Tim, it was either going in here or it was going as fact check. So it's you know the the time is spent. It's just a question of where you where you put it earlier, you put it later. <laughs> Yeah, cool. And we keep calling it Bad Batch, or I keep calling it Bad Batch. The show's actually called The Bad Batch. It's and, called Star uh, Wars colon week... The Bad Batch. Yeah, it's true. The, uh, the last week's call sheet, as Jonathan was asking, was uh, D. Bradley Baker, Rhea Perlman, and Michelle Ong, who we should be... be... That's who, who plays uh, Omega. We probably should give her some some uh, credit there since she's been doing it for a couple of for many shows now right but that that literally was three characters three act three voice actors made that show last week yep um and i actually did find the video the video was was uh him talking um and it was the showrunner the lady that created the show oh no, god here was another fact check um who uh who, who mentioned the fact that that she's watched him work and, it, and he literally just reads it right off the page and, and changes voices as required so that's cool. Um, and Scarborough's own Eric Bauza uh, is the voice of Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and all that kind of. He took over from the um, from the kids at uh, from um, Mel Blanc's son, who took over from Mel Blanc when he passed. Right. Hmm. So that's the cool thing. And then the last bit of fact: I went to the car show with my grandson Xavier, and we discussed Red Dead Redemption Two. And I was telling him about the fact that I was frustrated by the map part. He says, "Oh no, that's that's." That map that I couldn't go to, the part where you get, keep getting, you know, unceremoniously killed when you cross the border, is uh, part of the of the first version of the game. And once I get through all the epilogue episodes, which is where I am now, I will be able to go there and run around and get gold and stuff like that. 
So yeah, that's that's why I can't go to that part of the part of the world in Red Dead Redemption Two. All right, and that's enough for the fact check. We'll move over to headlines, and up first again is Jonathan Kulan. Yes, well, we got some some interesting stuff this week. Um, so we've talked about the fact that there's this Amazon series we watched, the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. So you know we've moved from having six films in the theaters for the Lord of the Rings uh, trilogy, and then The Hobbit, which was one movie too many probably, but we got these sort of big blockbuster movies and then there's this new era where we're getting this very high production value series. It's supposed to be a flagship thing for Amazon, but we did discuss in the past how this was going to be interesting because they only really got rights to certain parts of the Tolkien library and that the Tolkien family was holding on to certain other rights because they were um, owned by other parties. This week we got news of what exactly is happening there, so we're getting some new Lord of the Rings movies in the theater. There is a multi-year agreement with uh, Embracer Group, a Swedish media company, according to the good folks at Entertainment Weekly, uh, that uh, they are going to produce more films based on Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. They have not said yet what they're going to do, but... They did say they are going to make more movies based on those properties. They explicitly say in this story that one of the things that was never really given rights to Amazon as part of their very large, uh, I think it's 250 million US deal to acquire the Lord of the Rings television rights, they didn't acquire the rights to the Cimmerillion. So that's the sort of last piece, major piece of the Tolkien catalog that has never been made into a film that seems like a possibility but uh yeah we're gonna have a a tv show coexisting but not strictly speaking tied to movies that are coming out in the theaters how does this make you feel i feel very weird and violated (laughs) (laughs) i I don't know how i feel to be honest with you i have no no clue I, i don't know i don't know if i like is the world really ready for like a three hour movie? You know, I, I'm assuming that they're, they're going to be like the previous ones, right? Those being that being said, Avatar is a three-hour movie. Just cracked. I think it's the number two all-time movie now. So I was going to say though, but yeah, like that was that was for you and me. That was like we had to pack a lunch and you know, yeah. to, you know, find a babysitter for the dogs. And I know, you know. I, I ate the guy sitting two rows over because I was hungry. Yeah, and, and Jaime got the big gulp, so he had he didn't have to take a bathroom break halfway through, right? <laughs> <laughs> the secret is to not have. A big gulp. The secret is to have a, a normal size, you know, beverage of some sort, and you want to you want to salt up before then, so that it takes time for your body to sort of counterbalance. Yeah, just I see electrolytes. <laughs> That's good. He's got a strategy. Yeah. Um, but for me, I I guess it depends. This news is a little fuzzy to me. So if it's on the side of um, like reboots or remakes, I think I'm probably less interested if it is uh, taking stories from the, the broader, um, you know, universe of uh, Lord of the Rings, just like Rings of Power has been doing. I think that could be pretty cool. There's a there's a lot of epic stuff that seems to happen in, the you know, vast histories that they have. So that might be cool. Um, so it, it's kind of a wait and see for me uh, at the moment until they have a little bit more concrete detail. I feel like this one falls into the category of didn't need it, but getting it anyways. 
and it could be good. I, there's and there's a lot of different properties that fall into that group. But yeah, this is a weird one. Like the idea that it doesn't sound like they're going to remake the ones that Peter Jackson made because what would be the point of that? And they're still quite well. They they hold up quite well, and they're also, uh, you know, beloved. I think if they can explore different areas that doesn't just step on the TV show, my minor concern, and I hope that there is some provisions for this, is that they don't step on one another, the TV show and the movies, that there is like a a time difference or something that isn't going to create continuity nightmares, because that's when it really starts to become unfun for the fans, right? This is going to be an eternal meme, but it's like somehow Sauron returned <laughs> is, the, <laughs> yeah. is how they go with the sequel series. I don't know. Uh, I guess we'll see what ends up happening. But the, you know, the the room for uh, high fantasy like Lord of the Rings, I think, is, is clearly there. Uh, will will yeah. this be it? Maybe. I mean, for heaven's sakes, they've got Dungeons and Dragons movie, uh, another Dungeons and Dragons movie out or coming out. I forget where it is. Um, so. People are trying. People are trying to fill this gap. Yep. All right. Next up, uh, news that we're getting a uh, a little character crossover. So Stephen Wen is joining the uh, Thunderbolts movie. Uh, of course, he's very well known for his role as Glenn on The Walking Dead. And uh, recently, uh, 2020, he was nominated for Best Actor for his role in uh, Minari. And he was in uh, in the the Jordan Peele movie Nope last year, so kind of had a really great trajectory. They have not said which role he will be playing, but you'd think if you're going to cast somebody uh, like him and add him to a cast that already has, you know, Florence Pugh and Sebastian Stan and David Harbour and you know uh, Julia Louis Dreyfus, think he's going to have a pretty hefty role in there. So. I think that's that's pretty cool news, and again, also score for Marvel a little more diversity, which is nice. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't in he left the the um ugh, the beginning of the Negan era is when he left uh, Walking well, Dead. So it's been some years. Yes, right? yes, yes, he so. did. He he did quote unquote leave. <clears throat> that's a little. I think that's when a lot there. of people I think. I think that's when a lot of people left the show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Sort of like the Google and um, Amazon layoffs, right? <laughs> yes. They left. Yes, left. That's the word, left. Uh, okay, next up, we're getting a prequel to the It movie coming to HBO Max. They've announced Welcome to Derry is going to, to be a new show uh, focusing on uh, the events in this uh, scary little town in Maine set before the events of the movie, uh, the two movies, I suppose, It. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have not seen the new It reboot. I, I did watch the original. I have read the book. Uh, I'm led to understand the new one is absolutely terrifying. I have no interest in that. But uh, there clearly is an audience for this. Uh, any interest from either of you in seeing an It spinoff? Oh, I haven't seen. I haven't seen any of them. I've seen bits and pieces of them. So I've kind of. I've never really got meant to sit down and watch them. So I. I don't know. I would say. I would say. I'm sort of where I was with the. Uh, the last of us to be honest with you like we'll see <laughs> um but uh yeah not really uh i i think it could work so the the question i have is when they say prequel do they mean um like the folks as kids not as they rem- <laughs> let me take a step back so 
the way that it works, whether you're talking about the modern movies or you're talking about the, the older one from the 90s, um, was, you know, these adults come back to this, you know, haunted town and they you know start remembering these terrible things that happened when they were kids. So the, the series kind of or movie miniseries kind of goes back and forth between, oh, I remember when this really messed up thing happened, right? When they encountered it before as, as children. So I'm curious if this prequel series is for those kids, you know, we get to see more than just the the flashback memories of what happened or given the premise of it having, you know, been haunting this town for centuries. Uh, maybe it's you know, some other ancestors of some sort that were uh, like founders of the of the city or town, so to speak. So. I think it could work. I mean, it's probably going to be it's, it's a bummer of an ending because spoilers, you know, with, with the prequel, it means that the Pennywise wins at the end. Uh, he has to, otherwise, he wouldn't face the 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 children that we know from the the main series. Yeah, it doesn't. Right. Uh, it doesn't. It isn't very clear. It just says uh, the creator of the show said, "I'm excited that the story of Derry, Maine's most haunted city, is continuing." Uh, so yeah, I guess we'll see. See. I was going to say, well, maybe it's like going to be like the Jokerization of Pennywise, right? Who knows? Who knows? I guess we'll we'll see it in all its horror glory, or in some cases, we won't. All right, I got a couple comic book things because this uh, this is, this makes me happy. So, a one of the hottest comics over the past number of uh, two three years has been called uh, a series called "Something Is Killing the Children," uh, a very popular book by. Uh, James Tinian the fourth and uh Werther Del Edera and uh it has been just this like phenomenon in comics published by Boom Studios, which is sort of, you know, uh, uh certainly below the big two status uh a comic publisher. Uh but it just sort of came out of nowhere and became this screaming hit. The number one issue is worth, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars, thousands if it's graded. Uh, and it's really had a lot of buzz around it, and the series has been so popular that it really just became a matter of time before it became a show or a movie or some other adaptation. Well, we got news this week. It's coming to Netflix. So the creators of the Netflix series Dark and 1899, yes, the same 1899 that was canceled recently after one uh, ignominious season, are going to be developing the something is killing the children tv series for netflix so that's kind of interesting and um yeah it'll be really interesting to see how they they sort of bring this life it's a, it's sort of somewhere between horror and uh look it's like a monster movie so uh the description here from the hollywood reporter uh the first arc is Told of a town plagued by monsters that feast on children, one teen survivor telling tales that no adult believes. In this setting enters a mysterious young woman named Erica Slaughter. The woman who occasionally converses with her stuffed animal isn't there to mince words, rather to mince monsters. So, yeah, it's basically, it's about this sort of mysterious defender who arrives in this town to defend them from the, the boogeymen. And, uh, yeah, it's sort of, I would say it's darker than something like Buffy. But it sort of has a little bit of that kind of, you know, this mysterious, you know, person with these strange abilities sort of shows up and starts, you know, packing up monsters. Would you watch a series like this? 
Maybe. I don't know. Is it on it's, Netflix? It is, it is on Netflix. <laughs> well, then I'm probably not going to watch it. I'm using a Lopez calculus, as you know. <laughs> yes, that's true. Well, you know, when you do your, your annual one-month binge of all Netflix things, maybe you'll watch it. Yeah. Maybe I will. I mean, uh, the premise, if I'm not familiar with this property, but the premise of a town plagued by monsters that feast on children sounds like if you enjoyed it and Pennywise, you'll you'll enjoy this too. So. Uh, I, I think I'd be down for this. Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing I didn't like about the it part, even I think I think I first read it when I was probably far too young, maybe 13, 14, was the, the amount of helplessness that the kids have. Like when the first part of the like first movie slash first half of the original TV movie slash first part of the book, the kids are very, very helpless. They are just being victimized by this horrible thing, and it's just awful to the point where one of them is driven to suicide. And it's just, it's. I found that really, really off-putting. That was that was the part that I found really tough. And of course, you know, in the end, they win, whatever. But it's just, I found that part really, really awful because this this monstrous thing gets to kind of torture them. I'm I'm hoping <laughs> that that is not the case for uh, for something killing the children. Hopefully. There is that you know somebody somebody to the rescue. I like a somebody to the rescue story better than a than a monster tortures children story. All right, the next one I have is that uh, Marvel is resurrecting the Ultimate Universe. So there is going to be a movie coming out in a few years called Avengers: Secret War. So I won't get too far into the plot points there, but just you know. Want to completely avoid spoilers? Maybe skip ahead two minutes. But the one of the outcomes of that secret war story from the comic books is that it's about basically bringing all the divergent multiverse universes of Marvel together into one. That's how you end up getting Miles Morales into the Marvel proper universe. That's how you sort of bring these things together. And so, as part of that secret war wars crossover. Uh, the Ultimate Universe, which was this sort of alternate version of Marvel's Earth where, you know, uh, Peter Parker died and Miles Morales becomes Spider-Man. And there's all these sort of twisted and sometimes sort of darker takes on these characters, much more sort of new millennium than than 20th century. Uh, they decided to sort of pack it up. So they basically they folded up that universe and said, we're done. So it has now been uh, eight years. And the same person who wrote Secret War, Jonathan Hickman, is uh, this summer a big crossover series coming to Marvel Comics. He's going to bring it back with a series called Ultimate Invasion, wherein uh, some of the characters from the Ultimate Universe uh, seek to basically revive that that place. So this was a big announcement from Marvel this week. Marvel Comics uh, doesn't quite get the same fanfare as Marvel films, but uh, they do like to sort of give people a little heads up what they've got for their big sort of summer crossovers and stuff like that. And this one uh, has the uh, makings of a pretty massive epic kind of story. So even if you're a casual, uh, it's, you know, I think it's a four issue series. Uh, it's going to be drawn by uh, Brian Hitch, who was a very famous uh, artist, as well as one of the original, uh, you know, uh, drew, drew the ultimates, which is the sort of ultimate universe version of the Avengers. And uh, yeah, it looks pretty awesome. So you're into that it's coming all right well my my thing max thing here is we apparently we lost quite a few star trek artists in 2022 we've talked about some of them already on the show 
this video uh, kind of goes through in alphabetical order and um, lists them off. Yeah, so it starts obviously with Kirstie Alley, uh, as I said, in alphabetical order. Um, John Aniston, I think it's uh, Jennifer Aniston's father. Yep. Uh, Kurt Bailey, looks like. Uh, Gabriel Beaumont, who is a, a director kind of thing. I can't read it right now, so I can't really, because like, the video won't load. Um, other highlights. Robert Brown is interesting. Um, I didn't, I never knew this actor's name, but he was in a few shows in the 60s, and he plays... Uh, one of the sort of the Time Lord guy uh, in one of the in the original series, um, he was quite popular. You'd see him quite a lot in in early '60s, you know, westerns and stuff like that. Gary Bullock, um, another Tony Dow. Actually, I didn't really. He directed some of Star Trek: The Next Generation or Voyager, if I'm not mistaken. That's you know Jerry Jerry Mather's older brother Tony or uh, Wally, Wally and the Beef. Louise Fletcher. We talked about her before. Uh, Laurel Goodwin is the other woman in the cage. I don't know if you remember. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, Major Barrett. Yeah, so she played the other woman, the other uh, lieutenant that gets taken down to the cage with Jeffrey Hunter's uh, Christopher Pike, Wayne Grace, um, Michael Hegarty, Hegarty, who is a pretty much a uh, you recognize his face if you saw him because he's been in a lot of a lot of sitcoms and stuff like that. Um, Estelle Harris, of course, was George Costanza's mother, but she mm-hmm. was also also in. Star Trek, um, Catherine Hayes, who played, I don't know if you remember, she was like an empath in, in the original series. Um, skip it along. Uh, uh, Marva Hicks, who played Mrs. Tuvok. Tuvok? Tuvok? Tuvok. Tuvok, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Marsha Hunt. Um, let's see who else. Um, Leslie Jordan played uh, Ferengi. I'm not sure if he's the brother of um, Cork, right? Uh, Sally Kellerman, of course, we talked about her. William Knight was a bit player on on uh, the original series. Um, we had uh, I didn't get to double Douglas Trimble too, right? Oh, Mary uh, Mary Mara, I think is her name. She I think she played um, the founding lady that we were we were talking about earlier. Oh yeah, uh, from uh, Deep yeah. Space Nine, yeah. Yeah, there's another another uh, uh, Nichelle Nichols, of course. We talked about her. Um, this one here, I just can't really read it. Valora Norman, she played the the, you know, the episode with the um, where the guys the Fuhrer on the original series. She played the the lady that helps them. Um, really weird. And we talked about um, um, Maggie uh, Thieves, I think the the woman from Mud, one of one Mud, Mud's women, Douglas Trimble. We talked about him. David Warner was the uh, Chancellor Gorgon in. The Undiscovered Country, and he also played a um, Kardashian in a few shows. Yep. Uh, and then, yeah, great presence that guy. He had a he had a really great like. He seemed very commanding. Yeah. Well, he was like you know British. Yeah. Very sure he was a Shakespearean actor, probably like way overqualified for Star Trek, but you know, it's yeah, great to have him. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and it was and ironically he was also in the same episode with Christopher Plummer, right? So, yeah, our favorite, you know, substitute actor. <laughs> anyway. So that's uh, that's my uh, artist we lost in 2022, and I'll link in the show notes for that one. So now we're at the main part of the show where we talk about something related to Star Trek, and of course, this right now we're doing Picard season three. This is episode two, disengage, as opposed to, so do to... engage. Yes, do we engage or disengage? It's funny, you know. Um, do we want to do our elevator pitches, or do we just want to talk about the show in general first? 
Um, let's throw out elevator pitches first. Why not? Okay. Well, my pitch obviously is we're cornered in space where there are no corners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mine was, mine was, um, who is Jack Crusher and why is he worth saving? Mm, interesting. Yeah. Pretty close to mind that uh, Picard learns that Jack Crusher has a sketchy past and is being chased by bounty hunters. Quote unquote yeah. bounty hunters? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. You know, if somebody's paying money and you're, you're hunting somebody, I guess you, you could be a bounty hunter. I don't know if there's a, a guild or a, you know, a registration or certificate of completion that you need to have. Yeah, it was interesting in the, in the episode I wanted to talk about the, uh, like, at first I thought maybe it was like a data, you know, in the part where uh, Rafi is getting the messages from her sponsor on the screen. Yeah. And because of the, the lack of contractions, because I, I noticed that was one of the things that, that Data never did. He never, he couldn't say cannot, he would say cannot instead of can't or do not instead of don't, you know? Yeah. So I was, I was a bit thrown off by that. But then, of course, once we, once the reveal did happen, you know, um, that made sense too, right? Because he was another one that didn't speak in contractions, this mystery person. Yeah, it, for me, it was from the first episode, the line, you are a warrior and not you are a soldier, which would be the more typical word for people to use. Uh, that had me thinking. Mm. Uh, and I wasn't the only one. There were other people on the internet that thought that as well. Um, so I was delightfully surprised to uh, to see that it was him. Cool. So the pew pews? Uh, I, I, I had written down, now that's Batleth fighting. Because yeah, yeah. that scene where... Uh, Spoilers. We'll just cover spoilers from here on out, kids. They'll lose their heads. But uh, yeah, when when Rafi is trying to get to the bottom of of exactly who used that technology to destroy the Federation recruiting center, the Starfleet recruiting center, in the previous episode, she's sitting there with the the Ferengi who basically, uh, you know, force her to take drugs and then are are going to basically, uh, you know, they expose her for a liar and they're going to kill her. And uh, then all of a sudden, as she's having this sort of weird trip, we see this sort of blur of spinning batless as one person gets basically run through and a couple more start getting sliced up. And it ends with uh, with the, the bad guy of the scene getting his his uh, his lobes removed. So it's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I know we were talking about it in our sort of pre-show that uh, this might be the first time we've actually seen a batleth used properly in, you know. In the show, we see them, you know, he's doing sort of the Tai Chi Batleth moves. He does use it in sort of fighting, but it's usually often as like a sort of, he's almost using it as a blunt force weapon, not as a, an edged weapon. And uh, in this case, it's a damned edge weapon because <laughs> he's just chopping <laughs> people into little pieces. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and that, yeah, the first time we've seen people get dispatched in, in sort of that, you know, lose their heads as it were, literally. Um yeah, and actually, we were talking about that before the show. Aaron Stafford Stanford played the um, played Sneed, the the Ferengi in this one, and he's the same actor that that was the main star in um, in the uh, the Twelve Monkeys TV show, Canadian made show. Yeah, cool. Hi, May. Would you have for your pew pew pew? Mine was the uh, throwing a ship at another ship. Mm, kind of yeah. Also kind of really epic, yeah. Yeah, kind of a non-traditional one uh, for, for the pew-pew-pews. But you're you're still... Yeah, like they said, he said, what just happened? She says, they threw a ship at us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Use the tractor beam. You know, we've seen tractor beam be used to, like, 
you know, guide somebody into coasting into something else, but not as a as a flinging weapon. Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote that down under the they said what best quote, which is she threw it. A sh- she threw a ship at us, sir. Like that. That's just. Yeah. yeah like, with the sir. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, that, that was that was pretty, pretty crazy and so hard that it actually went through the shields. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of wondered what was was going to happen when when that ship when the two of them came at each other, but it's kind of a big ob- object to try and deflect, right? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Easter eggs. I saw that uh, when the shuttle that Picard and Riker had flown over to uh, to to the ship with uh, with the crushers on it uh, was destroyed by the the Shrike, the big nasty ship. Uh, when you see it, the the identification plate flying through space. It said the Savic. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Me too. Well, that must have been an Easter egg last week then too. We missed, missed that one, right? Yeah. Maybe they were close enough that we could see it, but yeah, it was that one because it was deliberately like spinning towards the screen. It was spinning rather quickly, but I, I did manage to, to catch that. Mine was uh, Christopher Plummer's DNA. Because. Wait for it. <laughs> Because Amanda Plummer played Vatic. She did. She did. <laughs> she did. There you go. And she was awesome. Like Yeah, she was great. I, I'm I've always been an Amanda Plummer fan, but it's funny because it took me a second. I'm like, I know the voice, I know the voice, but she looked obviously she's she's you know, she's older than some of the, the previous times we've seen her on television and she certainly has a different aesthetic. They've got her made up and everything, but uh boy, she's an awesome villain. Yeah. Well, she plays a good nut bar too. Like she's, I think I'm trying to think. Was it? Um, it wasn't Fisher King. Oh no, she's in she's in um, um, Pulp Fiction, right? Yeah, she's uh, she's Honey Bunny in in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, she's Bunny, the one yeah. who, uh, along with Tim Roth, uh, robs the diner and has that that great scene with uh, with uh, Samuel L. Jackson in the diner. And uh, yeah, she played a, a a great crazy in the uh, cult classic '90s movie. So I married an axe murderer as well. Also, really, mm-hmm. very very good. But she's, I mean, she's great in everything. She's a really ta- talented actor. And uh, yeah, man, she's chewing the yeah. scenery, but in like the best possible way, like lighting yeah. up the cigarettes and blowing smoke, and uh, you know, like I love that in like the 25th century. Yeah, she just waves her finger when they throw the ship. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Just gestures. Yep. Yeah. All right, let's get to the quotes. What What do you got for quotes? I was gonna say mine was mine was the my also mine was also the the, the um we're in space with where there are no corners, right? So. Yeah, yeah. We're essentially cornered in space, which has no corners. Uh, and that was Shaw, the captain of the the, the uh, Excelsior. No, the Titan. Um. I had oh you boys are in so much trouble when when Riker and Picard returned to the uh, the Titan that was very just the way the way that he delivered that was very funny. Uh, she threw a ship at us, sir. Was definitely up there, and um, I thought that was a great line. And I, I think it's going to come back again. Uh, and I think this was directed at the audience, not at Picard. But when uh, the Jack Crusher character has been put in the brig and he's speaking with. Uh, Admiral Picard, and you know, he's basically saying, you know, you don't really know my mother. You haven't talked to my mother in years. And he says, "Ask yourself, is there anybody you know who is still the person you knew?" And I thought, "Ooh, that's really interesting because obviously, you know, that can apply to Worf. It can apply to Geordi, who we're going to see. 
Obviously, we're going to see Troy popping up again. You know, we're going to get the whole gang back together. But we make assumptions as, as viewers of who we knew. But is it who we knew, right? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I kind of wonder about that because, you know, I mean, people do change and they, they, they mellow over time. You know, they, may, they may change their perspective and their things like that. But I think essentially people are the same people, right? Don't you think? I, I I don't. I don't. I think people can fundamentally change over time. And I, as I, must, I might even disagree with the mellowing part. I think some people get angrier and bitterer, more bitter well, over I time. I mean, like the people change their attitudes as they get older. They, they sort of see life from a different perspective. But I think I think at the core, they're the same person. Mm-hmm. Right. You know. So, uh, Jaime, do you have any quotes? I, I just have the one, although I do agree that that Shaw was just sort of. Uh, a fountain of quotes. Mine was... Oh, he, he was uh, throwing 100 miles an hour. Yeah. Some of them kind of deadpan, like, uh, bring them all on board. We're basically a hotel now. Like, uh, yes. a whole lot of pizzazz to delivery. Just kind of like a, an exasperated person of like, I knew these guys were going to get up to trouble. And now they have gotten me deeply into trouble. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um. So for the big question, I had two. I wrote one down here, but I have two. So the first one is, we didn't really talk about it last week, but I think we all had it in our minds that because of the British accent, you know, handsome looks and all, there was a little bit that was like maybe Picard's kid, alternate dimension, uh, Jack Crusher clone, what were the possibilities? Were you at all surprised when the payoff for this episode was... Oh, and by the way, this Jack Crusher character is actually Jean-Luc Picard and Beverly Crusher's child. Well, and and it was actually like her looking at Picard that he kind of just went, oh, crap. Right? Yeah, all with a look, <laughs> just with a look. Yeah, I was not surprised. Um, it it sort of, so I had sort of two big questions. And the, the one that's relevant here is, uh, my big question is like, it, is Beverly the the villain of this series because you know hear me out what kind of wicked sick plot does she have here where she has a secret son with her former lover okay happens but when you put on top of that that son is named after her deceased husband right jack Fisher. <laughs> and you know believe what you want to believe maybe that former lover killed or you know put in danger that ex-husband the, the dead husband like it, that whole yeah. situation of like you know picard's command on the scar dargazer and what happened to jack crusher always felt a a little dodgy so it was just like this really weird thing to put together that i'm like where was she going with this <laughs> right she, beverly is definitely the one who has changed the most in the past uh you know few decades so that that was my big question of like why did she do all these things? This is going to need some some big reasons. So this this kind of raises a few things. I was thinking about that today. Like like it's the twenty fourth century. Are we not done shaming women for unwanted pregnancies? Seriously? Yeah, but I don't know that that's the case, right? Like, well, I mean, and and well, let's 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 explore that for a minute because there's there's another perspective to that whole discussion too. Is is okay? Um, you know, given that. It's the 24th century in vitro fertilization. There's all kinds of like, you know, I'm sure you're, I'm sure by that time there's, I mean, we already have artificial wombs. They announced it last week, right? So, I mean, does, 
you'd necessarily have to put two stupid people in a bed together to make a baby. Like, no, you know, like, and, you know, and this whole, we tried to be lovers and it didn't work. And, and yet you, you talked about the timeline having changed last time, you know, um, plus the whole age factor. I mean, like, how do we know she didn't get a test tube, a couple of test tubes and a Petri dish and do it herself right? with the, with the DIY, you know, make yourself a Jack Brusher clone or Picard clone trick, you know? I think that would only apply if Jaime is right that she is the villain of this. The idea that she would do that with Picard's DNA as a as an older adult, like she would have been in her, I'm guessing, mid to later 40s when she would have had the relationship with with Picard and 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 theoretically had this child. It seems unlikely to me. I, to me, what it says is, you know. I was pregnant when we last were together and, you know, I had this baby and I didn't know how to talk to you about it. So I, that's why I cut you off, which is a bit of an old trope, but I think that's probably yeah, the most logical explanation. Yeah. Or you didn't want the son or you're, you know, yeah, you're, but he you would never give up the enterprise, you know, like it. the old Kirk coin, right? Yeah, exactly. I, um, I will put a, a pour, a, just a smidgen of water on the idea of her being the bad, bad person in all this just because of the opening scene of this episode where we flash back to two weeks ago, Jack Crusher is trying to get past an embargo on a planet to try and deliver medical supplies slash Romulan ale slash weaponry and is stopped by these inspectors and basically bribes his way out of trouble. And while doing that, uh, the lead inspector sort of goes around the corner and says, you know, tell the marked woman we found him. Now we can right, yeah. we can say whether or not the marked woman is Vadic uh, or someone else to be determined later. But for now, I think that rules out Crusher. True. And did you notice that that did, I kind of read Jack's body language that I'm glad he didn't check this particular case. Like yeah. you know when when because he kind of he shows him he shows him the wrong the. Inspector finds the Romulan brandy, and then he shows him the the weaponry, and that's where they they negotiate the thirty percent cut or whatever, right? And then, as he's walking away, he kind of smugly puts his elbow down on top of another box which they didn't open, mm, mm-hmm. thinking, "Oh yeah, this is the really good one, right?" But yeah, but but by the same token, though, they're kind of like meds on frontier, where they're they're you know trying to get the medicine to the people that need it, no matter what, right? Yeah, I guess that, again, it depends on how you interpret it, because then you get later in the episode, you get Picard basically reading stuff off, and they're, you know, pointing out that, you know, he certainly was not above, you know, breaking rules, but also that they were, you know, pretty pointedly willing to break some, you know, break some eggs to make some omelets, right? Like, they were certainly, uh, you know, not afraid to trade in arms in exchange for medicine in order to get things done. Yeah. Okay, so my other question, big question, was, so this, the first season of Picard was Borg, and it was about the Borg, and then tied into Data, and it, however you felt about the first season, it definitely tied into the roots of Picard in a very important way. It explored his mortality, it explored his relationship with Data, it explored his relationship with the Borg, and having... Uh, you know, played a role in in sort of you know their their destiny. There was gravitas to it. 
you can decide, you know, your, your, your mileage may vary on whether or not that worked for you, but that was sort of the purpose, I think. Season two was, again, about the deeper parts of Picard. It was about, you know, his relationship with his mother and his father. It was about the, you know, relationship again with the Borg. It kind of got to the root of some very important parts of Picard and who he is and sort of what his whole life has been about. So if we take that formula and apply it to season three, we're two episodes in, if this is the last season of Picard and you'd have to think probably the last time we'll ever have this group of actors together from TNG in one place. What is a satisfying and and gravitas filled conclusion? Who could be a big bad worthy of that? Who is the con to Picard's, you know, uh Kirk, right? Like who 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 how how do you have something that has that level of gravitas? And thinking about who that could be. And then I was looking at the cast list and trying to figure out how the heck they're going to cram Brent Spiner back in here, having already killed Data. And the name I came back to was Lore. Yeah, no, definitely Lore. That's what I'm thinking. Now, whether Lore is a part or all of this, I guess, is interesting. Uh, your, very, <laughs> your crystalline entity cameo notwithstanding, uh, who else in your minds would be worthy of a TNG send-off. If this is the last hurrah for this very beloved Star Trek property, what could they do? Having already done the Borg in two previous seasons, it can't be the Borg, because that's really Picard's sort of nemesis, right? Notwithstanding the nemesis from Star Trek Nemesis. Yeah. Yeah. That's, is there, is there anything? Is there, is there anything that has that kind of gravitas? Do we know what Will Wheaton's doing these days? He's hosting the Ready Room, I believe. Yeah, I know. No, I, I definitely, definitely in the in the trailers there. You know, you, we saw Brent Spiner, and I got the impression it was Lore because, because as you've mentioned many times before, Data is no more, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then B four just doesn't have it, right? Well, so. but B four also contains Data's memories slash mind, does he not? Hmm. I thought he was like incapable. He wasn't quite. Well, know, he was. He was in a drawer last time we saw him. But other than that, um, if we're talking about trailer stuff that happened, we we saw what we believe to be lore, what we believe to be Moriarty, and we know that from season one they were establishing a. Wow, we did some terrible bad things to uh, artificial intelligence folks because of the like, you know, terrorist attacks that happened. Um, I wonder if it if it's meant to tie sort of all of those things together. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to say. I don't, I, I don't, almost like I want to be surprised and delighted by whatever comes. I don't want it. I don't want it to be something that's so predictable and tropish, right? But then at the same time, I think it also, I think, as you say, I, I know we we're gonna get Moriarty at some point. How that works out, I don't know. I think we're gonna get Laura oh, at some Moriarty, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. I do not know whether either of those would, would sort of stand as the big bad in all this, but, um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how they could, you know, I, I almost, I feel like maybe I'm putting too much pressure on it in my mind, building it up maybe too much, but you know, like last season, the first season we got the Borg last season, we got Q like again, Q 
arguably the biggest, uh, outside the Borg, the biggest sort of character or, or nemesis or rival or however you want to phrase it for Picard. Yeah, what 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 could be the coda to that? Like, what's the what's the one you go out on, right? I just I think that's an interesting yeah. thing to sort of keep in the back of your mind while watching this. Is where is you know where is the big bad and will it be enough for an for an ending like this? So sidebar on Moriarty, like, so where did we leave him? Like, does he actually get off the holodeck? Because I know that one there's one episode where he figures out how to take over the ship, right? I believe they, I believe they basically put him. Uh, on ice they realize that he's become something else but there really isn't at that point an opportunity to do anything but then we know now that like voyagers come back from the delta quadrant with like hollow emitters that can be portable and and a doctor who can go for a walk so is it feasible that that the moriarty character is you know out and about well also also vatic re- uh, refers to picard as in the synthetic flesh yeah. right like yeah. the fact recognizing the fact that he's no longer a human right like i thought that was was that not kept a secret in the, in the end of season 1 uh, i guess not i mean mm. clearly someone must know out there well the pirates know obviously yeah well but then she also seems like cuz she's talking about shaw's uh mental health reports from from uh starfleet as well so i don't again that to me was very suspicious i'm like well is she either really tapped in or is she from the future or like what like how would she have that level of of knowledge yeah she's like the textbook um comic book nemesis right because she's she's even got the unknown weaponry right like like the stuff that's so bad as weapons go that even the federation doesn't have them right yeah, I uh, I'm just looking up the Memory Alpha article about Moriarty because I, I I remember the first episode very clearly. I had to kind of like remind myself where we left off, and yeah, I think the last thing was that they they basically tricked him because remember he he in the original episode with him they say well we're gonna basically put you in a bottle, save your program, but we don't have the capability of getting you off the holodeck. Four years later, he comes back and he uh, is like, hey, you guys forgot about me. And then he has this whole plot where he's going to, like, get off the ship. And he and the, the, the Countess character that he's with, they, Picard and Data basically trick him into thinking that he's gotten on a, on a uh, shuttlecraft and left. But actually, he's inside of a memory module. And they basically say, like, you know, they're going to think they're out there exploring space. but They're actually just trapped inside this little program, inside this jar. I wonder. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if um, if there's a logical way for him to come back from that. But uh, yeah, I guess we're gonna find out one way or the other. But yeah. Well, this was a solid second episode. I'm excited to see where this is going. Like, I, I was thinking, like, well, you know, every season of Picard has had a really kick butt first episode, and then as you peel back the layers, it's like, you know, again, your mileage may vary. I think there's been some good and some, you know, oh, really? Okay. This was like a real, you know, again, a great second episode, built the mystery, the stuff with Rafi, like, I still am excited for next week to see what happens next. No, I think also, too, they, they probably pulled out all the stops knowing this is the last kick at it, right? And that's what I want. Yeah. Like, I, I want this to be the, the biggest, most sort of epic, you know, I want this to, to have an opportunity to, sh- to have every one of these actors, you know really give us a satisfying ending for their character for for you know all the 
all the things to come together in the biggest and coolest possible way for all of them. So go for it. Take a big swing. It's got to be like Professor X and Logan too, right? Like just like Patrick Stewart's performance and that was amazing, right? Yep. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Bad Batch? All right, Jaime. Star Wars, The Bad Batch, Season 2, Episode 10, Retrieval. When last we left our heroes, they were stuck on a planet with no ship and no one who wanted to come pick them up. What did you have for your elevator pitch? It was nearly identical again. Uh, You know, I I call them the batch in my notes. So the batch is stuck on the planet and hoping to find a way out. (laughs) I had uh, Clone Force 99 wants its stuff back now. Uh, so this one was basically, it was the, the mission was, uh, is our, is the Marauder still around? Once they figure out the Marauder is still around, how do they get the Marauder back so they can wrap up this little two, two episode arc and get off this, this, uh, depressing mining world. Uh, it was, um, it was good. You know, it was, again, sometimes this show sort of vacillates between, you know, some pretty intense emotional stuff and then, you know, just sort of goofy fun adventures this one was sort of halfway in between obviously the you know there was this sort of overarching story of the uh the you know menacing character who's keeping all these poor people uh under his thumb and and exploiting them for profit and everything else but you know in the meantime there's this you know fun thief character benny and you know the, the chemistry with Omega and, you know, and then, of course, all the quips and stuff from the from Wrecker, you know, uh, going through this. It was it was not too heavy, I think, which was good. Yeah, I, it's kind of interesting that they find a way to not feel too heavy when it's like, once again, in a kid's show, we have, you know, <laughs> child labor, child slavery, whatever you... <laughs> whatever you want to call it here like it's not it's not good <laughs> i'm like wow it stays surprisingly light uh all things considered yeah i uh i liked uh, i had it sort of as a as a um a smuggled quote but also uh, as the best pew 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 for this one was uh when the 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 mining uh leader and um is it mako and um the bad batch are sort of squared off with their guns all pointed at each other and uh you know they're like you know you well you better not miss if you, you're gonna shoot at us and, and they say we never miss and then of course a second later when uh when he turns on his people and uh is you know gonna have his his uh robotic agents sort of take a shot at the, the miners who are coming after him they uh the bad batch fired two shots and Kill, kill both the robots. That, that was a really good, uh, you know, good use of the pew pew pews on that one. What'd you have? Yeah, that that uh, that was my best pew pew pew. The bridge standoff, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I did agree that that was a really good way to to get the flavor across of of who uh, the bad batch are. So that was fun. Um, my my quote here was uh, by young Drake telling Mako, you know, we. Mm-hmm. We toil in the mines while you enjoy the spoils in a real, like, you know, capitalism bad, socialism good kind of moments for when they say, like, they're going to share all this stuff instead. Yeah, we'll definitely get into uh, uh, socialism when we start doing our recap of the Bad Batch in a couple of minutes. But uh, the, yeah, the quotes that I had pulled out, it was, you know, uh, Benny the thief uh, who stole the Marauder when... uh, (laughs) When the the bad batch show up and start you know doing their thing, you know you definitely aren't Ipsium miners, uh, and 
And tech, of course, the statement of the obvious, the conditions of this mine are less than ideal. <laughs> and like, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's pretty bang on. Um, and the only question I had out of this one was, you know, it very notably, especially having watched, uh, you know, all of Clone Wars and all of Rebels, when, when somebody says something like, give me a call sometime if you ever need a thief. Uh, when Benny says this to Omega and the Bad Batch at the end, the question becomes, you know, do you think it's inevitable we'll see Benny again? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like they're they're dropping stuff that will either pay off uh, later in the season or will pay off next season if they're they're leading towards that. They're 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 leaving yeah, openings I, for a lot of these like uh, other folks, uh, both friends and foes to come back later. Yeah, I think it's one of those. Uh, that's what uh, the, the that's how um, J.K. Rowling writes her books, right? You basically you leave a trail of breadcrumbs, and you never know which way you're going to need those breadcrumbs to go, right? You just you, you just keep dropping references to things that way you can pick it up later if you need to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But again, it was good as, as a little two parter. Obviously, the first episode was a little heavier. They were dealing with losing uh, losing Echo and and Omega's feelings and text feelings and stuff like this. This one was a little more sort of lighter, and and in spite of the child labor and the uh, the oppression. Uh, it was, it was good. And of course it sort of wraps up in a nice bow with, you know, them getting back to their ship and, and taking off. So I think we hit the reset button for next week's episodes and, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll get something fresh. Uh, the last of us season one, episode six kin. This was, uh, this was certainly not quite as heavy as last week's episode. Um, what did you have for your elevator pitch for, for the last of us this week? You know, I didn't write an elevator pitch um because it it would end up being sort of <laughs> kind of a weird transitory one right where like uh you know joel reunites with his brother for a minute and then uh heads out <laughs> with, with heads up heads along to the next adventure with 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 ellie um but it the elevator pitch doesn't do justice to what i think ends up being sort of the heart of this one which is mm -hmm you know, superficially meeting one of the goals that Joel had, right, before he even, you know, took on the the task of of uh, helping Ellie. Uh, he, from the beginning, was wanting to, to find his brother and reconnect, right? That's why he was yep. trying to do the, the telecommunication stuff. Um, and seeing that his brother is somebody, a, you know, a little bit or perhaps a lot different than what he remembered is kind of another thing for him where Joel seems a, a bit sort of stuck in his ways, a bit stuck in the past. And he's starting to see evidence of like, Hey, th this dude is like a responsible guy as part of this little society. And Oh, by the way, he's married and they're having a kid. And it's just like, uh, almost like Joel's moment to, to decide like, what is it you're like, are you really on this, on this trip? Like it was kind of convenient to, uh, to, all right, as as long as I'm heading west to see my brother, I guess I'll help Ellie. Now it's like you have seen your brother. You could you could dump her off on the side of the road if you wanted to, and no harm, no foul for for most people. Nobody's going to know. Um, and instead, he he does seem to contemplate it for a while, right? Of like, hey, I'm traumatized. I can't do this. I'm I'm broken. I can't I can't do this physically or emotionally. And ultimately decides, no, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm not sending my brother. It's it's me that has to see this to the end. That's a really long-winded way. It doesn't yeah. make a good elevator pitch, but the, the heart <laughs> of this felt like the 
the the real call to action for Joel of like there's there's no turning back now, right? Yeah, yeah. I I mean mine was sort of along the same lines, you know, the the long trip west finally pays off in in one of the ways, but it goes <clears throat> bananas in the other as they end up with uh, a bit of a dead end on 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 Ellie's side of the mission. You're right though, Jaime. I think uh it's funny because there has been a lot of emotion in this show. You know, we talked about episode 3, a very beautiful and poignant episode that didn't circle around Joel and Ellie. Uh and then of course the last two episodes, you know, two people who were not dissimilar to Joel and Ellie in uh in in the two brothers who, you know, their story ends very very tragically. Here we sort of flash forward and we know that the two of them, you know, they haven't found another vehicle. It looks like they've been just kind of hoofing it from Kansas City to Wyoming uh, or, or Western Alberta, depending on your perspective. And it's it's funny because, you know, they, they start out by sort of showing them having this sort of, you know, like they've clearly grown closer. They have this relationship. Joel still got his guards up a lot. And you see that really sort of fraying. And this is the moment where you're right. He has to kind of make this choice, you know, like he's been closing himself off. He closed, clearly closed himself off to Tess, even though, you know, a part of him clearly loved her, but he kept himself so closed off because he was so devastated by losing his daughter. Here we see, you know, his relationship with Ellie. He clearly is, is very, very attached to her. And he's so scared of what could happen based on that feeling that he had for his daughter and the tragedy that happened there. And it just sort of is starting to crack him in half. And the way that he finally comes around to it is to sort of finally acknowledge it and be like, yeah, like you are my responsibility and I'm not your dad, but I love you and I need to take care of you and I need to see this through. And it was really in spite of being, you know, uh, sort of a, 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 I don't know, maybe like sort of a, a, a through episode. It wasn't necessarily like, you know, there was no big set piece. It was no big, you know, action scene. But it, this definitely was a really, really important episode for understanding Joel and Ellie's relationship and what's going to matter to them going forward for the rest of this entire series. And the fact that they really are, you know, it is the two of them. It's not just Joel and Ellie. It's Joel and Ellie, right? Like we're, we're one group. And I, I thought that was really beautifully done. I think this was Pedro Pascal's best performance so far. He was really, really quite captivating in this. And even, uh, you know, I really thought that we got a lot from all the supporting characters. Uh, it was like, is it, um, what's the, the actor who plays his brother? Um, I should know his name. But I thought all of them were really, really, you know, well done. And, you know, as you say, they get to this point where they're at this, like, you know, they, they make it to this town. They've got a completely different way of life. It's safe. It's, you know, like mm -hmm. everybody, they're watching movies, they're making popcorn, they've got a Christmas tree, you know, and I think that was one of the triggers for Joel too, is, you know, oh my God, Christmas, you know, I haven't even had to think about Christmas. I don't think they were doing Christmas in, in, uh, in Boston, right? And when they're under the thumb of the, of the Fedra, I, I think this was, you know, a really, really, uh, yeah, really, really well-told story about, you know, people hitting their breaking point and then finding a way to push through. Yeah, I think it, it was one where, um, just following on that, that theme of emotion, I, I didn't get the exact quote, but when Ellie is confronting Joel about, like, you know, everybody's gone, nobody cares about me except you, just 
freaking you who who I thought cared, right? When he's telling her that he's gonna leave her behind and have the brother take her. Like the the quote there was was great. And I think your your quote is another good one as well. But that was the one that I took was was from Ellie for this episode. Yeah. I found the name is Gabriel Luna was the actor I was uh, that played Tommy. He was I thought really good in this as well. Uh yeah, I mean the the quote that I had pulled out for this one was from Maria where she's talking with Ellie. And she says, uh, be careful who you put your faith in. The only people who can betray us are the ones we trust. Now, she's trying to sort of foreshadow this, this sort of twist of Joel saying, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to take you. you Tommy's going to take you. And, you know, even though we've built this relationship, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, cast it over to him. And then, and of course... He doesn't, right? And so it's it's almost Maria being a cynic, and 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 um, Ellie having the faith, and then having it prove true, in that you know Joel clearly cares about her and does take her in the end, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it it's one of those quotes that can be taken, you know, in several different levels, and I think the one literal level that sort of sounds like, oh yeah, that's true. Like you know, you can literally only be by, uh, betrayed by people you trust because if you you know if you don't uh, you know if you don't trust someone then it's like literally impossible for them to betray you so what came to my mind was the uh the fable of the scorpion and the frog folks don't know you haven't heard mm-hmm. this one it's like you know hey scorpions are dangerous but it's like you know it wants to cross a river and it can tells the frog hey can you let me jump on your back we'll cross the river Frog's like, no, man, you're going to sting me. Like, no, that's stupid. Why would I do that? Like, if I stung you, then we would both die. We would drown. Frog's like, yeah, that's a good point. All right, jump on my back. And halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog. And he's like, why the heck did you do that? He's like, you know, I'm sorry. I, I just have to do it. It's in my nature, right? So mm-hmm. from that angle, it's like, well, <laughs> I just expect scorpions to sting me. And I and I treat them that way. They can They can never betray my trust. They can... They can sting me, sure, but it's like, well, that's on me for letting them get to that area. I, why would I trust them? That's the other angle that I sort of took this one from, in that a, you know, the the people we we trust, the people we love, they're they're the ones who can betray us, and we really hope that they don't. But if you if you never open yourself up to somebody to uh, to be betrayed, you're never going to have trust. And I think you know Joel's closed off nature that you were talking about sort of fits with that. Right, he he never let anybody, even Tess, get all that close. So he he never could be betrayed. Yeah, yeah. Um, wasn't a lot of action in this episode. Uh, I, the PPP I had was obviously the the conflict between the the um, the baseball bat wielding thug in uh, in at the, in the Colorado University campus who uh, you know has a big fight with Joel, and Joel, and of course, ends up getting stabbed at the end. So. You know, that's a, that's about as high watermark as you can get on that that uh, that, that pew pew pew. Unless you have something uh, else, I I can't think of anything else really that was sort of actiony from this one. Yeah, it really it really wasn't an actiony one. Um, there there was tension, right? Like, um, I I think I'd made the comment to my significant other. I'm like, oh, being on a bridge that is like the most obvious place to get ambushed because you as soon as you're on the bridge, you are trapped, right? You they can just encircle you from one end or the other um and mm-hmm. and you do have the tense moment of you know maybe these guys with guns are gonna are gonna shoot us or maybe this dog is gonna rip ellie apart because it can sense that she's uh infected and uh, 
tension, drama, but not uh, suspense, but not a lot of pew pew pews until you have the the fight uh, with the the was it raiders marauders? I forgot what they called them. Yeah, I think they were calling them raiders or something. It's it's, it's kind of a weird term. I mean, they were essentially like baseball wield back wielding thugs, right? Yeah, yeah, folks scavenging for stuff. Yeah. Although I was thinking about that as I watched that part, you know, they're just like, oh, there's four guys with bats out there. And I was thinking, like, how how sustainable is that lifestyle? Like, they're not farming. They're literally like, well, somebody else has got something. Let's beat them to death and take their stuff. Like, you would starve to death before very long, right? Like, it just doesn't seem sustainable. Yeah, a lot of these things seem uh, kind of tough. Like, the, the, the handful of things I could think of lasting forever are like, you know, roaches and Twinkies. <laughs> Thinking like, yeah. like the the main things that people are are consuming because the, you know, just just go to your pantry and find long lived shelf life things like uh, canned vegetables or, um, you know, dried beans, you know, cereal like Cheerios or something like it will last years, but it won't last twenty years. So no, it's gonna be, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you'd think there would at least be some method to their madness where they might be like, you know, extorting farmers for their goods or something, you know, like something that would be more sustainable, you know, go, you know, go run an extortion racket where you basically threaten to bash people's heads in or or a protection racket where you're like, hey, you give us stuff, otherwise we're gonna, you know, let people come and get you. But the idea of just like walking around with bats wailing on anybody you encounter just does not seem like a sustainable uh, uh, food source. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For the Easter egg, uh, I think everybody had the same Easter egg this week, which was uh, Spot the Crew. Uh, there was a, a bunch of different articles. I've, I've linked one into our show notes here where uh, the, you can see the, the still image. So uh, apparently I didn't see it in the moment. Uh, I certainly wasn't looking for it. Uh, congratulations to those people with eagle eyes who noticed these things. But uh, apparently in that scene where they're crossing the rail bridge if you look to the left bottom of that you can see uh, a few members of the film crew standing around on the riverbank while they're doing the the aerial shot and people are of course making the comparison to the coffee cup left on the table during game of thrones i'm sure just like the coffee cup they will edit them out and it'll just be an anecdote from the past from that altitude, honestly, I didn't even think that they were people. I just thought that they were rocks or trees or something. It never occurred to me that those were people standing there until I saw like the blown up image. So I think they're kind of uh, a lot of people making a mountain out of the molehill here. What uh, what was your take on this one? Yeah, I, I did not notice it in real time. And looking at the the pictures, I'm like, you know, it's a little bit different than the coffee cup, the Starbucks coffee cup in Game of Thrones, which like you know, literally couldn't happen in universe, right? Here in universe is like, hey, Ellie and Joel didn't notice these people who maybe raided and said, hey, uh, get your guns because uh, we we were doing some stuff over here. We saw some people crossing the bridge, right? Like, hey, they probably will Photoshop it out and, and re-upload and remove it. But uh, it seemed less egregious than the Starbucks coffee cup. Although I have seen... Now, in the, the link that you put, there's, like, tweets and stuff that people have where they, like, photoshopped in coffee cups to cover up where the crew oh, yeah. is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it really has been a, quite the meme fest this week. People are having a lot of fun with it. But, uh, as I say, it didn't distract in the moment for me enjoying the episode. And so, therefore, you know, 
c'est la vie. It is what it is, obviously. You want to avoid those things, but I'm, I'm very confident HBO will just edit them out and you won't even notice going forward. But uh, yeah, um, the big question I had this week. So when Joel and Ellie arrive at the university in Colorado where they expect to find the Fireflies and they're trying to get Ellie, uh, obviously, to them so that they can try and, you know, get her blood to try and find the cure, the vaccine to, to this mushroom uh nightmare that they're living in so they get to this building and uh they see uh, you know a, a, i don't know what they what's a, what's a group of monkeys called a, a herd a pack uh what, what do you what does one call a group of I monkeys I'll feel look that like one up it too. might vary like i think baboons have packs but i don't know if that's true of all types of uh of simians yeah we'll, we'll have to look that one up but uh there's these wild monkeys who clearly were research animals that look like they've been released, and this sort of ghost town uh, environment of this university campus, and it it did sort of spark in my mind. You know, why would this mushroom uh, or fungus-based virus only infect human mammals and not all mammals? Do you have a sense of this? Like, to me, it seems very odd that something that would be able to sort of get into, like, because they say initially in the first episode that, you know, cordyceps can't get into human bodies because human bodies are too hot, but then it adapts because of global warming and then it starts to spread and it gets into the food supply and yada, yada, yada. Wouldn't the monkeys also be susceptible to this? They are obviously uh, not, not distant relations to human beings. Yeah, I don't recall if there's anything... From the game that ever talked about this, even in a, a hand wavy way, I think they are going down the path of like you know the the scientists in Indonesia like didn't even believe that this was from humans until they showed the sample of like oh cordyceps cannot live in the human body so it it doesn't go too deep into the science in this uh, show but it, it does seem like they're mm. hinting at like you know just ignore the fact that like things like COVID can go to other animals. But it is also true that there are some human diseases that never cross over to, you know, even closely related animals and vice versa. It seems a little bit based on, um, you know, some of the, the particulars around, um, you know, antigen response, immune response, and sometimes just chemical chemical stuff, he said with air quotes <laughs> of like, hey, <laughs> you know, they're, they're 98 percent, you know, the same as us. But that last 2 percent is a big difference. Right. So I think, um, yeah. Yeah, and it, it got me thinking about other animals. Like, obviously, you know, Joel, there's a running joke in this episode that Joel wants to run a sheep farm. Uh, that if he had his, you know, if the cure comes, he, what would he do? And he says, I'd like to have a sheep farm. Uh, it just got me thinking about all of the other animals that, of course, we see animals in the, uh, you know, they're riding horses when they get to uh, to Wyoming and all these other animals. It just started getting me thinking of like, well, why why one and not the other? To me, that didn't make a lot of sense. But uh, you know what? I'm going to take this as a personal mission. I do have a colleague and a, and a friend at, at my office who's uh, an epidemiologist and uh, studies the spread of diseases and stuff. So perhaps I'll uh, I'll hit her up uh, the next couple of days and see if I can get a an answer that I'm satisfied with. Although I'm uh, she's she's very she's also she's a, a nerd like us, and uh, I'm, I'll be curious to see if she has a take on this. Yeah, that was a good one. Um, I also just before we go on uh, on Last of Us, I wanted to give a little shout out. So the the couple uh, that they 
that Joel and Ellie sort of uh, crash up on when they're trying to get directions at the beginning of the episode. Uh, of course, the 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 male in that scene is the the legendary Graham Greene, uh, very famous um, uh, Canadian um, and, and indigenous person living in Canada. And, uh, of course, you know, nominated for an Oscar for Dances with Wolves. Very, very, very famous performer and, and an absolute icon, especially up here. The other actor was uh, somebody people might remember, but may not. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Northern Exposure. Uh, Jaime, the uh, the show set in Alaska, about this sort of uh, fish out of water story about this this uh, big city doctor who ends up in this rural Alaska town as the doctor. But uh, Elaine Miles is the name of the actor, and she played this great deadpan. Uh, you know, she has this beautiful voice and this beautiful deadpan delivery that she used on that show for years, and she was just uh, an absolute fan favorite and. Uh, to see her again after what's been a fair bit of time, I really don't think I've seen her in much else, uh, to come back. And she's essentially playing a very similar character to that, where she's, you know, bantering back and forth with uh, with Graham Greene was just an absolute delight. I, I thought she was great. And I, I'm as cameos go, those two were amazing. It, it was kind of interesting to see here that, like, I hadn't thought about it until you sort of broke these things down, that when they when Joel and Billy encounter the couple, both males are like ready to pew 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 each other, and the ladies are yeah. like a little bit more chill and relaxed in a different way. Like Joel's like, "Hey, like you should be staying up there because I might have to shoot this couple, depending on what happens here." And Ellie's like, "Come on, it's fine. Like we're 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 not going to hurt anybody. We're just looking for information." And the the other. Uh, deadpan delivery you said for the lady of like hey you know, they didn't hurt me <laughs> the husband's like i could you I made them soup <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah no it was uh again i i think obviously it's nice to have some representation there you know uh i did see you know uh, a, a number of um people commenting particularly people who identify as uh, as native american or indigenous people in canada uh commenting and saying you know it makes perfect sense that these these two uh, indigenous people would be like, no, thank you, white people. We'll be out here doing our own thing. And I thought that was a great way to look at it. Like, yeah, we don't want to have anything to do with whatever it is you're trying to do over there. We're going to live in the woods. We're going to hunt. We're going to make soup. It's fine. Yeah. Live live the ways that we've done before. We weren't, we weren't involved in any of your mess. We just happened to benefit from being out here. Yeah, that yeah, was uh, absolutely a nice one. All right, you ready to move on to our watch list? Yeah, yeah. What is the, some of these links are different than when I looked at the note. Oh, oh, oh yes, I'm I'm throwing things in here for you. So uh, last weekend, I made a point to watch the the very last Fox X Men uh, movie, which I had been putting off. It came out a couple years ago, and and it had been on my radar. But I thought, you know, I'm finally going to sit down and watch this. So I watched the New Mutants, which was this, uh, you know. It's a very, very popular comic over the years. It's basically sort of, you know, X-Men, the next class. It's about all these uh, mutants who are sort of brought together uh, in the comic books who are brought together and are sort of the junior students at uh, Xavier's school, uh, you know, who ostensibly will grow up to become the next X-Men. In the film version, they take a bit of a different tack. The idea is similar where it's a group of sort of misfit mutant characters who are brought together at this. Uh, sort of hospital facility, very isolated. They're not sure why they're there. And 
that you sort of learn about it as the movie unfolds, which, you know, what the characters' powers are, what they can do, you know, why they're there. And um, unlike, you know, a lot of the X-Men fare, which is sort of ripped straight from the comics, this was ripped from a comic as well. I should be clear on that. It's from... It basically adapts the, the Demon Bear story from the third year, one, two, yeah, second second into third year of the New Mutant comics from the 1980s, uh, Chris Claremont and Bill Sinkovich. And it's basically about, you know, uh, these different characters. It's a horror story, more or less. It's basically about how, uh, you know, each of these characters has to confront their inner demons because this one character is sort of radiating this power that that forces them to do so. And I wasn't sure what to expect going in. I like the characters. I, it's filled with good actors. Uh, you know, it has uh, uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, who, you know, again, has, has, has risen to stardom since this. Uh, it has Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones. It has Charlie Heaton from Stranger Things. Uh, you know, it's, it's a good cast. And I thought, well, I'll, gi- I'll give it a crack. It was, it's, it's a short movie. It's only like 95 minutes or something like that. I thought, oh, I'll give it a crack. I liked it way more than I thought I would. Now, maybe that's because I went in with low expectations. But I thought that, you know, it was an interesting take. I thought that it was something different. They clearly looked like they were trying to sort of maybe set it up for doing more. I did read a little bit online afterwards where they were saying this could be a, could have been envisioned as a, as a trilogy of movies. Obviously, that's very unlikely to happen now. But uh, it's 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 almost one of those, you know, you're sort of disappointed. You're like, well, I kind of would have liked to see where they could have gone with this next. Who, What other New Mutants characters could they have introduced? What else could they have done with this? And I would say, you know, if if you're looking for a pretty easy watch that's, you know, a nice sort of, you know, thriller, light horror kind of take with a little bit of super powery stuff mixed in, it's very, very watchable movie. It's on Disney Plus here in Canada. I assume it's the same in the States. And yeah, it's it's totally worth checking out. You know, it's, uh, I, I don't remember what I thought at the time that I saw it, but thinking about it now, uh, I think I'd agree with that, that it is a, an eminently watchable film. I think that uh, if the, uh, you know, if there was a cross streaming service recommendation system would say, did you like Wednesday? You might like New Mutants, uh, you know, similar yeah. kind of vibe. And that maybe speaks to how this film was like you know really poorly timed right we talked about how it was uh finished or close to finished and kind of hung around long enough that people were like oh my gosh mm-hmm. <laughs> um you know Arya stark is way older now than she was in this movie uh what's going on um that it it maybe would have done better in the the sort of zeitgeist if folks had been able to see it when it was intended to come out i, I don't recall what the uh, the production drama was um, or alternatively if it had come out now and again kind of sliding into the hey you wanted to see more like wednesday well here's this other thing about these uh these misfits in the school and it's kind of dark and uh you know buffy the vampire slayery yeah i mean it's 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 a smidge darker than that like there there's certainly humor in there and there's you know there's even a little light romance in there but I would say it definitely skews a little darker than than Buffy or or Wednesday does, but it's not far off. Like it really is kind of the next the next level of that. But it's 
it's kind of nice. Like it certainly it references the the X Men. They do get a name drop in there, but it it doesn't rely on your knowledge really very much of any of that. Like it kind of stands on its own. I can say I was I was pleasantly surprised with with what I got from it and thought uh, yeah, kind of disappointing after after watching. I was like yeah, it was there was definitely potential here. Like. Uh, I think it got sort of, you know, middle of the road kind of reviews. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't an absolute amazing thing. It certainly was fun. I mean, there was no world in which they could ever do justice to the Bill Sinkovich art from that original arc. Like, it really is just something else. But at the same time, it's, it's yeah, it's it's a pretty cool vision of that. And, uh, and yeah, just uh, definitely give it a look if you're looking for something in that sort of uh, Marvel-adjacent universe. Who knows? Maybe they'll show up in Secret War. You never know. Yeah, yeah. All, all things are possible now. Oh, yeah. Uh, next thing I've got on here, this one, I, I saw this, uh, you know, earlier in the week, and it really caught my eye. So one of the most enigmatic uh, artists around over the last, I mean, yeah, half century is Bill Watterson. Bill Watterson is the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, one of the most beloved comic strips of all times, one of my absolute favorites, and is just an absolute work of genius. And very famously, Bill Watterson rejected all uh, outreaches to turn what he considered an art project into uh, a capitalist project. He did not want to make toys. He did not want to make mugs or or posters or action figures or you know T-shirts. Like there is. No official merch for Calvin and Hobbes. There is none. He would not turn his art into that. And, you know, he very famously, he, you know, he built the series up. It was incredibly popular. It was in, you know, every newspaper around. It was much beloved. And when he decided he was done, he wrote an ending to it and it ended. And after that, he he basically turned into J.D. Salinger. He just dropped off the face of the earth, and nobody had heard from him very much. He'd had a couple of interviews, but really kind of had been off the radar since 1995 was when, when that series ended. And it was announced this week that he is going to be releasing his first book in almost 30 years. It's a graphic novel called The Mysteries. And apparently it is a fable for grownups is how they're pitching it. Uh, see, this is from an article from Gizmodo. Uh, plot revolves around a kingdom that's become home to frequent disasters. Desperate for an end to the calamities, the king enlists his knights to go in search of source for all these events. And years later, only a single knight returns to tell the tale of what happened. Uh, I, I'm 100% in. I'm 100% in. I, I am absolutely fascinated to know what you know, what Watterson has to say after all this time and, you know, to to come out and do something like this, I think is really, really interesting. It's not coming out until October the 10th. So uh, it's it's a 72 page graphic novel. So something fairly should be fairly easy to to pick up and read. Uh, I, 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 I'm so eagerly anticipating this book now. I'm, I'm absolutely enthralled with the idea of, of knowing what Bill Watterson has to say after that work that he was so famous for. Yeah, I think it didn't immediately click when I said, what? You know, I see the the link. I'm like, this is very strange. And then I said, no, wait a minute. Hold on. You know, Calvin and Hobbes, despite its sort of uh, lovely, kid-friendly 
uh, exterior is actually pretty deep and intellectual and gets oh yeah a hint at that uh, I think the the sort of tone they're going to go for of when Calvin imagines himself to be a hard-boiled detective or he imagines himself to be um, spaceman spiff these you know edgier sort of takes that turn out to be oh look it's a little kid in his wagon it's a little kid doing uh, fun things if you ignore the little kid part i'm like oh okay i can kind of get how the tone would work for this uh fable for grown-ups as simon and schuster uh, simon and schuster describe it as yeah yeah i just i like it is I, if you ever have a chance and and i you know i own all the original, uh, you know, sort of floppy paperback books of the Calvin and Hobbes, which I read, you know, when I was a, a young person. And then I, years ago, uh, when they released the beautiful library edition that they put out. Now, there's two editions. There's a hardcover one and there's a softcover one. It's basically the entire of everything that, that Watterson did on Calvin and Hobbes. It, you're right, Jaime. It's, it's an incredibly thoughtful and poignant uh, you know, for somebody who was basically doing a, a you know a three to four panel strip and then you know a Sunday a Sunday edition, it, it's it's really nuanced and 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 you're right, cerebral and and deep in a way that uh, kind of transcends its form. And and as I say, I mean, I I'm a Bill Watterson fan. I'm 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 in. I'm a hundred percent in on on this. Uh, I'll have my my pre order up uh, very very soon on that one because uh, yeah, I, I'm just. Again, it, it for me this is you know for the generation before us. I think this would be if J.D. Salinger came out with a book after thirty years, right? Like I think everybody was like, "Well, you know, the three books were amazing. What else you got?" And he was like, "Yeah, no, I, I don't have anything else to say. Leave me alone." Uh, you know, I, I think that was what a lot of people regarded with Watterson was just: is he is he ever gonna come back and have anything to say, or is he just like I said what I had to say and I'm done? So the fact that something else is coming is just I'm. I can't absolutely can't wait. Yeah, it, it's really cool to to see that sort of stuff happen. Uh, and last up for my watch list, I have uh, just the absolute no brainer of no brainers. But by the time you hear this, we will be mere days away from uh, the Mandalorian season three premiere, which is coming March first on Disney Plus. Uh, I had this down as my most anticipated series this year. Um, in spite of it being a pretty stacked year for for really cool properties coming, I, you know, when you think about, you know, I actually contemplated going back and watching a little bit of season two again this week, just because as I found myself ruminating on it, I was like, damn, that was a good episode. Damn, that was a good episode. The, you know, the last season of this show brought us the live action debut of Ahsoka Tano, brought us the return of Luke Skywalker brought us, you know, like all these incredible, you know, moments, the return of Boba Fett, like we, we got these incredible Star Wars, you know, moments, you know, you, you look at the trailer, which we'll have linked in here as well. You know, we see there's lots of Mandalorians, uh, obviously, you know, there's a bigger story there continuing from the book of Boba Fett episode that, that involved the Mandalorian and Grogu. Uh, you know, we see, you know, Grogu obviously getting more comfortable with his force powers. And yeah, I'm I'm just I'm absolutely enthralled with the idea of where they're gonna go with this show. So yeah, I mean this is this is the the slam dunk of slam dunks for uh for for all of the things we like on TV. So uh I, I can't wait. I can't wait for Wednesday. Yeah, it'll it'll be it'll be pretty great. Uh they 
you know, they gave us that tease of the Mandalorian season 2.5, and I think made me, you know, want even more to go. So uh, really looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What do you got for us? My pick goes into the, you know, as long as we're in the, you know, semi-nostalgia realm with Star Trek Picard and thinking about all things uh, the next generation, you know, it's maybe time to have some nostalgia for Deep Space Nine. And here somebody has put together a uh, Lego Star Trek Deep Space Nine intro. So the the intro to the show done in um, uh, CGI Lego bricks. So if you feel like the Lego Star Wars kind of look, that's kind of what you would imagine it would look like. And it works pretty well. I'm like, wow. Uh, people point out that there's even a California class at uh, 50 seconds into the intro. So it's maybe the uh, uh, the enhanced version of this intro from uh, Lower Decks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, that makes sense. Huh. Yeah, I'm just, I'm just watching it now. This is actually pretty cool. Well, and it's clearly later stuff, too, because they've got uh, Natalie DeBoer as the... And Michael Dorn in the credits too, right? So yeah, yeah. got got the defiant version. So it, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that's fun. All right. Well, uh, Tim is uh, is still having a rest, so <laughs> I think that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Uh, so hey, Jaime, if people want to find you, where can they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev of the Hair, and you can find me on uh, Twitter and Instagram as at JPK News or on YouTube at uh, YouTube.com at jpk and uh yeah that's it for this week and uh until next time we'll see you in the future bye bye you've been listening to the spotcast podcast if you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes visit the spotcast website at spotcast.com you can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at SpockCast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskSpockCast. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash You can find details on how to help us on our website, SpockCast.com slash SponsorUs. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the future. in the off chance that Tim is able to loop this back in because he can always just pretend he was here in real time. Uh, this Hello Tomorrow, I had to look it up, and I realized it's the Apple TV Plus show with the retro-futurism angle to it, right? Where it's oh. like, like, oh, uh, you know, what if it was you know 1950s style of living, but, you know, you could go live on the moon kind of stuff. Spaceships and all that sort of stuff, like... Uh, uh, kind of, kind of Jetsony, kind of uh, Happy Days and Jetsony kind of take on it, but uh, I think it's a drama of some sort. I've I've not seen this myself. I'm not sure how many episodes are out. Yeah, I didn't. Is this uh, is it actually on now, or is this uh, something coming soon? Let's see. First episode date according to Google was Friday the 17th. So it, I think they've 
And uh, oh, okay. Thing, the the premise here, according to Google, is in a retro futuristic world, a charismatic salesman Jack Billings leads a team of fellow sales associates determined to revitalize their customers' lives by hawking timeshares on the moon. And it's Billy Crudup. Who? Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I'm just watching the trailer now. It's it's really interesting. I see Hank Azaria, and uh, yeah, interesting. Hmm. This might be worth checking out. Good job, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the episode guide, given the date, so it looks like they're half an hour episode each. Sorry, half an hour each episode. And it looks like they dropped the first three episodes, and episode four comes out on Friday the 24th. So I see. Okay. So, so get do you have a, a subscription to, to Apple TV Plus? I do. Um, I got, I had the free three months for whatever reason that Apple Wallet decided to give me a promotion. And then I sort of just kind of kept it coasting because we're watching, uh, we caught up on the third season of Servant. And then we're going to uh, catch up here on season four and start watching that real time. And I caught up on Ted Lasso, and I'm like, well, it's not that far away till Ted Lasso season three comes out. So this will help fill in some of the, the uh, what am I spending my Apple TV Plus dollars for? Stuff like uh, Hello Tomorrow yeah. would be good. Yeah, I, f- I found myself, uh, especially with our conversation last week about Netflix and the relative value of Netflix, uh, especially as they are sort of reining things in, um, I found myself sort of looking at the grand scheme of everything and thinking, well, what do and I don't watch? And I know Tim has definitely gone down the rabbit hole and a lot more in Disney Plus, and I think you have as well. There's certainly shows on there that are on my radar, but I just, it has not become a habit for me to go and sort of browse what they have in the same way that it has for Netflix or Crave here, which is sort of our stand-in for HBO Max and even Amazon and Disney Plus. It really is still the sort of the fourth option for me. So I don't find myself going there nearly as much in spite of the fact that, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed Ted Lasso. I actually enjoyed the foundation series a fair bit. And there have been other things that I've watched on there and enjoyed. And I know they, they're producing high quality stuff. I just, it, it hasn't become a reflexive habit to go and look there. Uh, so that's how this stuff like this sort of falls through the cracks. And I found myself looking at that and being, well, go on paying like whatever it is, $9 a month. I'm like, I, I really should either use it or lose it. Cause, uh, you know, I probably done. And I think it was like the day after I thought that they dropped Ted Lasso. So I would just like to say, get out of my head, Apple. Cause <laughs> clearly they knew I was thinking about pulling the plug and they were like, Oh, hang on. We got Ted Lasso and season three for you. Yeah. I feel like some of the issues that I run into with these streaming services is that, um, they're not finding the right balance between, you know, the things that I want and the things that they want. And there, there could be some overlap there, right? So I think, um, you know, I'd like to see more of the show me stuff that you know I would intelligently want to watch and, and, and critically, like, filter out stuff. Like, it's like, hey, Star Trek Picard, new episodes. Like, great, that's smart. But once I've watched the episode, you don't need to show me that anymore, <laughs> right? That, that doesn't yeah. have to be the marquee anymore. Like, you literally know exactly how far I got through that episode. Um, uh, you know, you don't need to to have the, the dumb carousel promoting it to me, like, as if it's new. Like, what am I, am I going to watch it again? <laughs> I'm going to watch the episode again? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, okay, maybe. But, like, you know, you can take that opportunity to show me something that would be 
related to like, oh, did you like Star Trek Picard? Here's these other things that you might be interested in. And I think that in uh, some cases, they also like promote some stuff like, bro, you know, I'm not going to watch CSI, whatever city that is. Like, I never watch those. Right. Show it to somebody else yeah, who's yeah. like seen every every episode across every series, every season's great. But for me, I'm like, just literally don't even waste my time with that. It makes it harder for me to find some of these uh, possibly hidden gems uh, like a Hello Tomorrow of like I, I never browse through the Apple TV plus um, archive because it just isn't presented in a in a in a way that's meaningful to me instead. I end up using either something like uh, like Just Watch and discovering that, oh, this is on Apple TV Plus. Or um, I got to dig up that uh, that link that Tim had of like, here's literally everything that's on Apple TV Plus. It's a, yeah. a, like a blog yeah. page that keeps getting updated. Like that's that's silly that I have to go to these external resources to understand what content you have that I want to watch. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I wanted to ask you about Ant-Man... And the Wasp Quantum Mania, something we didn't talk about in this episode. So I haven't seen it yet. As far as I know, Tim hasn't seen it yet. Uh, a bit of a busy week, but I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll probably make an effort at some point. Do you think you'll go to the theater to see this or do you think you're going to hold out for Disney Plus on this one? The, radio, the, the reviews have not been favorable. They've sort of said, you know, yeah, it's it certainly fits into the big picture, but it's not by far the best of, of the Marvel bunch. Yeah, I, I'm because of the mixed response, um, which I guess it's worth mentioning that it, it is hard to foresee what this is, given that on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics say 49% and the audience says 84 So mm -hmm. maybe average those out and that's the truth in the middle. So I don't, I don't know where this, this fits, but it doesn't seem because of that. It doesn't seem compelling enough for me to be like, oh, let me just go see it in theaters. Uh, maybe I'll change my mind if you folks go watch it and you tell me, well, it's so great. You should go check it out. Otherwise, I might just wait for Disney Plus. And I feel like um, I feel like for me, having just seen uh, Wakanda Forever recently on Disney Plus when it came out, I felt like it was a nice movie, but I also felt like it wasn't its own movie. Like it felt like it was trying to set up other movies um, uh, as a more primary thing. And, and I, I give it a little bit of a pass because it's, it's really hard to make a movie when you were planning to have it, which have Bozeman and he, he dies unexpectedly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I yeah. give it, you know, a little bit of a, you know, a, a passing grade kind of thing for that. But um, I, I don't know what to do with Ant-Man and the Wasp because I, I have tried not to get into spoiler territory. So I don't know if it is, yeah. Uh, suffering from the wants to be uh, a fill, uh, uh, not a filler, a uh, uh, bridge the gap movie, or if it's its own yeah. movie and people don't like what it is. Like that, that's what I can't tease apart without getting into spoilers or accidentally spoiling myself. Yeah, yeah, no, it's you're right. I think it's it's hard to know what it is specifically that people are are finding. You know, they they isn't really sitting with them. I've heard a few people say, you know, uh, that. Jonathan Majors as Kang is amazing, but it seems like almost too big for something as, pardon the pun, small as Ant-Man and the Wasp. Uh, yeah, I'll be really curious to to finally get to see it. You know, I I think I kind of fall into the same area of Marvel movies and shows that Tim is with Star Wars, which is to say, he says 
there's no such thing as bad Star Wars. It's just degrees, right? Marvel's still kind of that for me. You know, like I, there's certainly some stuff in the Marvel stuff that I am fine with that some people are, are very adamantly disliking. Uh, it's hard to imagine that it's as, you know, I, I think probably the, the worst of the bunch for me so far would be Eternals. I just didn't find it meant anything. Maybe it will once, with the benefit of hindsight, we know where the Eternals fit and everything, and maybe it, it will become more essential. But for now, Eternals just feels like it's way out in left field. I do really wonder, uh, you know, how how bad could it be? Now, these could be famous last words, but how bad could it really be? I mean, I like I like the actors. I like the scenario. I mean, yeah, I guess I'm really curious. But at that being said, I, I was out last weekend, so that, you know, a couple of, like a day after it came out, and I went to a couple of local comic shops. I was out, you know, had a day to myself, so I kind of went and did a little browse, stopped at a couple of shops. And I like to chit chat with the the people in there just to sort of see what's what's cooking. And a few people said, "So you, you know, have you gone seen it yet? Are you going to go see it this weekend?" And I sort of said, "Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not really a first day person anymore. I certainly was pre pandemic. I don't think I really am anymore. But uh, there was still, you know, there was still a lot of talk about it, and there was certainly like you know a lot of interest, you know, amongst the sort of you know the the hardcore." But then they're also the hardest audience to please. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Yeah, it, it's also kind of hard for me to, to tell what is um, almost like grading on a curve, but a really unfair curve where it's like, you know, oh, my gosh, this, this, this movie is such a bomb. It's like, well, is it going to make its money back? Well, yeah, I was like, well, then it's not a bomb, then, is it? <laughs> I mean, is it uh, is it huge and gold uh, like some of the the bigger ticket um, earning movies? Uh, maybe not, but it, uh, it feels unfair for some of these things to be viewed from the MCU as like, well, this is a failure versus, yeah, this is kind mm-hmm. of like in the sort of lower half of the tier of uh, what they have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, how many? Oh, sorry. I was going to say, how, how many movies do they have now? I haven't uh, haven't seen the latest count, but it's like, you know, dozens by now, right? Yeah, 32, I think, is the number. Yeah, I mean... Uh, they can't you know, all getting, be good. Yeah, I mean, or they can't all be like, oh my gosh, each one broke a record of the previous one before, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the investors yeah. want that, but it's not reasonable to have that. Well, in the Ant-Man movie, the original, and then the Ant-Man and the Wasp were... All things, but you know, by comparison to the grander s- scope of Marvel movies, were fairly low performing. I think they, and I'll have to look it up, but I think they only brought in like you know a mere four hundred million, or you know, like it was not, uh, it was not monstrous. It certainly was not like Avengers money. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the original Ant Man made five hundred and nineteen million dollars that's a half a billion dollars not nothing by any means and of course this was when they were just like rolling uh it'll be interesting to see sort of relative to things like that where it ends up sort of fitting in but like did anyone really think that it was going to be you know uh avatar money like i i it never would like it when when avengers the kang dynasty or avengers secret war uh wars comes around if those don't get, you know, into the billions plus category, I'll be super surprised. If an Ant-Man movie, you know, and and I should say for the record, like, according to the deadline, this is a story from four days ago, it's already made $400 million, $421 million 
uh, at the global box office. Like, that's, that's fine. Like, you know, and it's going to play for a few more weeks. There's not a ton of competition right now at the box office. It'll, it'll make well past a half billion bucks. It's been out for a week. It's made 420 million. Like, it's not, it's not that people aren't going. It just seems like there's a little bit of a dissatisfaction with maybe the type of story it was. But I, I started saying earlier, my, uh, my son and our cousin who is living with us have been slowly watching from the beginning all the Marvel movies. And so sometimes I will pop in and watch some of the early stuff with them as they've been working their way through. And recently they watched uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Now, that one kind of got a little bit panned at the time for the fact that they kind of, you know, it's overstuffed, right? They just, they tried to sort of not only tell a story, but they were jamming in setups for you know oh we're going to set up the new Thor movie we're going to set up the new Captain America we're going to set up all you know all these different things they were doing setups for and it kind of watered it down a little bit and you know in the end I think some people weren't satisfied with it but as I sat down and sort of watched and sort of saw certain scenes you know the Iron Man Hulkbuster versus the Hulk fight in South Africa the big fight at the end where they're fighting through you know an army of of Ultrons uh you know, there's some great scenes in there, some really fun stuff. And, you know, there's, there's a lot to like about that movie in spite of the fact that it's certainly, yeah, you're right. It's in that same bucket of like bottom half, but it's not a terrible movie. It's just not quite as high a bar as they have ever reached. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as I say, if you're going to make 30 plus movies that are in some way connected to one another, they can't all be hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes and make two billion bucks. Yeah, yeah. I was now thinking about this that you said the number of movies and then thinking about Iron Man. I was like, wait a minute. Doing my math, we are in 2023, and I think Iron Man came out in 2008. The Delta there is 15 years. There are human beings who ex- who are yeah. you know relatively well formed, speaking, functional human beings who may not literally have existed when this whole thing started. You know, it's gone on long enough. I'm like, oh my gosh, 15. Yeah, if you're, you know, precisely 15 years old, you probably didn't see the movie when you were, you know, just freshly birthed, right? Um, and uh, thinking about it as a an ongoing story of things going on, um, maybe we're looking at it from that perspective as like, hey, just to wrap, uh, turn this into uh, a final bit of, of, of theory sprinkles for uh, Starship Picard, more and more on the humor side. But like, you know, when you had something like a TNG, had, you know, 24-ish episodes per season, not all of them were winners. Yes, you had Best of Both Worlds. No. Yes, you have Yesterday's Enterprise. But some of them were like, Beverly Crusher is getting it on with her grandma's, you know, scent <laughs> candle, <laughs> which, which came to my mind as like, oh my gosh. Maybe that's the true villain. It's not Beverly Crusher. It's the damn candles. That's what was in <laughs> in the box <laughs> with Jack Crusher. And he was like, Wait, you, I don't want you to see this box. <laughs> My mom made me get all these candles for some reason. <laughs> oh, if there was a twist. You know, I, I really wonder if they'd have the stones to have an in-joke like that. But uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's a good. That's a great point. Yeah. I mean, again, you're right. Like, not everything is destined to be. Uh, you know, an, an A-list classic. And, and you know, it's funny. And honestly, like, I feel like it almost speaks to the quality of the films that Kevin Feige and, and Marvel have put out over the last, as you say, 15 years. 
that there have been so many like absolute crackers in there. You know, we have gotten Civil War and and Winter Soldier and, you know, Endgame and Ragnarok and, you know, these just absolute bangers in there that, you know, yeah, it certainly it does sort of cast a bit of a shadow over some of the the lesser and I hate using that term, but lesser movies, but you know, yeah, I think that's realistic. I, I just took a quick look to see what the the total was for uh, Ant Man and the Wasp, and the number that I'm seeing is 622 million US. You know, I think it's safe to say that this movie's probably going to outpace both of those, and we're still in sort of a quasi pandemic era too. It's going to do fine at the box office. It's going to make its dough, and you know. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's more of a glue movie that glues, you know, as you said, bridges these, you know, this larger Kang storyline into the Avengers, and maybe it'll have more poignancy as as time goes on, and and that's fine. But you know, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 weird to to see the sort of negativity. You know, people are I don't know what their expectation levels are. They had to do a bit of a reset at the end of. You know, after Endgame, they lost, obviously, mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. They lost, you know, all these different, you know, uh, key, key players, you know, Scarlett Johansson. And, and um, you know, they just, they had to, to take a different tack. They had to build new stories and new characters and build them up and, and elevate some of the characters they'd already had. You know, can't, can't, be, can't be a killer every time. I am. Now, I may, I may eat these words by, by next week, <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised that people aren't saying, you know, what if Killmonger and Kang the Conqueror fought each other? Oh yeah, that's Creed three. <laughs> I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this. It's a weird, weird, weird uh, coincidence for these to be coming out so close to each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's and there's always these weird collisions too. Like there was a, a weird, uh, there was like a romantic thrillery kind of movie a number of years ago with uh, Josh Brolin and Elizabeth Olsen, right? And it's like, so Scarlet Witch and uh, Thanos have gotten it on in this movie, and now they're like taking swings at each other in this other movie. It's like, eh, that's kind of weird. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know what the time difference is, but uh, not seeing, uh, again, trying not to spoil unless I'm not seeing what Kang the Conqueror looks like, but like, man, if he looks like he does in, in Creed 3, he is beating up Paul Rudd. <laughs> There's no way Paul Rudd <laughs> is standing up to that guy. He looks huge. Oh, it's, it, yeah. I, I saw some of the pictures where he had his shirt off. That He is jacked. He looks fantastic. I mean, I'm not sure he meets the Michael B. Jordan, uh, you know, level of excellence. That that man is gorgeous. But, you know, yeah, it's it's pretty uh, it, it's pretty impressive to see what uh, what, what uh, Jonathan Majors has done to his body. All right. Until uh, until next time. Yeah. So uh, just um, I, I guess we'll message about it on Slack. But I assume we're going to do a Mandalorian mix in there uh, for next week as well. Because, yes, that's, that's right in our wheelhouse. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And oh, cool. crap. I thought I'd slacked you guys this but uh it's worth looking at now because i'm like literally staring at a calendar so mm. uh I, I can do next week the march 2nd that's mm-hmm. no problem i will be out on um the week of march 6th through the 10th okay um, so, so i will actually be speaking at a conference in japan uh so that's why Ooh, I'll, be, cool. I'll be out um so I'll, I'll try to watch what i can but i don't i don't recall what happens to netflix and uh and never tried disney plus or um paramount plus over there because i'm not sure if i had those and i have to double check but 
Um, yeah. Good little experiment anyways. Yeah, it's good to just fire them up to see, like, what does it show me? Because <laughs> I do remember yeah, no kidding. being in the UK when we were doing Discovery and uh, firing up Netflix because I was, uh, you know, just winding down. I was like, what? Discovery's not... Oh, that's right, because I'm not in the United States, so it's not on Param- uh, CBS yeah. All Access. So I, I have no idea what will happen when I fire things up over there and, and what content I will and will not be able to see. Maybe, maybe I'll have to turn on uh, Amazon because I don't know where Picard is outside of the u.s and canada mm. i feel like they added paramount plus in those markets in some of those markets but i, I couldn't tell you about japan i know they had, they opened it up in a couple of places in europe but uh but i can't recall well i look forward to uh yeah like the the streaming wars take japan with uh jaime lopez that's that's pretty fun that's awesome i uh, japan is very high on my i wish i wish i could get their list that's uh, that's, uh I'm, I'm deeply jealous of your trip that's awesome yeah thanks i'll uh keep you guys in my in my heart and mind while i'm uh, while i'm over there just so just a quick yeah. week there. I'll yeah, take the, lots of pictures. I'd love, love to see uh, the, the the adventures. I know there's a lot of great, uh, you know, what the heck is this in Japan kind of stories that people come <laughs> back with. So uh, one of my friends from work, he uh, he went there. He, he, he lives here. His brother lives in Australia. They decided to go to Japan together. So they met, you know, in Japan and were there. And while they were there, there was an earthquake and a typhoon. <laughs> and he was oh, like, man. they literally had to like, they had to stay in their hotel because it was the safe place to be but it was like a Japanese hotel and you know these two guys were like basically shoehorned into this little tiny room for like a day and a half while this typhoon went through after the earthquake went through oh yeah I, I 100% know the, the last time I was in Japan it was uh, it felt like a shoebox um, that I was yeah. in for my hotel room and then when I went to the UK they were like oh we're very sorry sir we're, 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 uh, we're a little short on room so we're gonna have to give you a smaller room and I went in I'm like this is like a palace <laughs> not by American standards but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Given what I went through, I'm like, this is not something to be ashamed of. So it's it's all relative, right? Yeah, it's in these moments where, uh, you know, being someone of my size, I'm, I'm over six foot one and, uh, you know, long legs. And I, yeah, I, the idea of being crammed into a Japanese hotel sounds like a nightmare to me. But uh, my colleague's like five, seven, maybe. And I'm like, well, it couldn't have been that bad. But his brother's, I think, as tall as I am. So it's pretty funny. <laughs> all right. Well, have a good uh, week. And we'll, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll reconvene next week. We'll have some Mandalorian to talk about. It's awesome. All right. Until next time. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.